This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free, electrolyte drink mix. I tried this recently after hearing about it on another podcast, and since then, I've stocked up on boxes and boxes of this and usually use it one to two times per day. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks. As a coach or an athlete, you will not find a better product that focuses on the essential electrolytes your body needs during competition. Element has become a staple in my own training and something we are excited to offer our coaches and student athletes as well. Element is used by military special forces teams, Team USA Weightlifting, at least five NFL teams, and more than half the NBA. You can try it risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. They have extremely low return rates. Element came up with a very special offer for you as a listener to this podcast. For a limited time, you can claim a free Element sample pack. You only cover the cost of shipping. For U.S. customers, this means that you can receive an eight-count sample pack for only $5. Simply go to drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. That's drinklmnt.com slash justinclimo to claim your free eight-count sample pack. Drinkelement.com slash justinclimo. The Context Podcast is proudly sponsored by Delta Wines and Brick and Mortar, our everyday go-to with sustainability built in. Delta Wines are vibrant yet balanced, made to be enjoyed on special occasions. Brick and Mortar was founded in 2011 and has worked to create the European wine drinkers, California wine. The wines are small lot, single vineyard sourced from Napa, Sonoma County, and Mendocino Ridge. In addition to tasting good, they also help you feel good with an eco-friendly packaging and environmental nonprofit donations with every purchase. Buy online at winesforchange.com. Also, use the code CONTACTS to support us and get a discount. The presentation is beautiful, the wines are great, and you'll be supporting Saving the Earth. What more do you need? Again, that's online at winesforchange.com, discount code, contacts at checkout. Hello, and welcome to Contacts, a podcast dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches sharing what they have learned throughout their career. I want to open the door into my network of contacts whose innovative, reflective, and diverse coaching knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. I'm your host, Justin Klimo. Welcome back to Contacts. We are joined today by Coach Steve Kenyon, owner of Speed Strength Training, football coach for over 40 years in the Sacramento area. Super excited to talk to you, Coach. Thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So, a storied career that runs back to way before I was even in Sacramento. If you wouldn't mind taking us through your background as a coach, how'd you end up in the profession, being an educator, moving around throughout your career, and what that process was like for you to get your feet in this water and then sustain it over 40 years? I graduated from the University of Nevada in 1980. I played for Chris Alt at Nevada. We had some great teams up there. Frank Hawkins, Doug Betters, Don Smerrick, Charles Mann, a lot of NFL guys. And we were 11-0 undefeated when I was a senior. I wasn't a great player, but I was a, a really good student that was fortunate enough to play football. 
<laughs> and I applied for a graduate assistantship at Long Beach State in the exercise physiology lab. After I graduated, I got the nod. So I moved Kit and Caboodle from Reno to Long Beach. And I was working in the exercise physiology lab with, with Dr. Joseph Mastropalo, who is an internationally known physiologist. I'm going to come back to this a multitude of times. I've just been very fortunate to be around some really smart people. And I've been smart enough to know that I don't know a lot and I could listen and glean information from experts. And I think if I have a talent, it's amalgamating all of this knowledge into a package, either a football package, a science package, or a, a strength and conditioning package. I coached at Long Beach Wilson High School because when I moved down to Long Beach, it was right at the beginning of summer. I lived at 4200 East 10th Street in Long Beach, California, which is a block from Wilson High School. I could wake up every morning to the smell of the grass and the crack of the helmets. I worked in the morning in the lab from six to nine, and then I took night school from seven to 10. So all day, every day, instead of running on the, the beach or surfing, I decided I walked across the street and I met a gentleman by the name of John Meyer, who's the head coach at Long Beach Wilson. And I said, I just moved to Long Beach and been playing football. I'd like to help you out with coaching the freshmen or the JVs. At Wilson High School, 3,700 students, three grades. They had a sophomore team, they had a JV team, which are juniors only, and they had a varsity team. And nine varsity on-campus assistants and the head coach. CIF Big Five football. We're playing Fountain Valley, Servite, Modern Day, Long Beach Poly was in our league. You talk about getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. That was me. Unbelievable. And Gene Rowland, Owen Dixon, and John Meyer, the three main coaches, had over 100 years experience in high school. Skip Rowland, his roommate at UCLA was a guy by the name of John Wooden. <laughs> So that's the guy that I learned from. My career started by listening to and learning from Owen Dixon, 40 years of coaching, Skip Rowland, 40 years of coaching, John Meyer, 30 years of coaching, and the CIF Big Five. From 1980 to 85, I was an assistant. Applied for a job at Encina High School in Sacramento. They had lost 30 games in a row. When I interviewed for the job, I walked out of the office going, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I got hired. Our first year at Encina in 1985, I was three, six, and one. And the second year, we were six and four, made the playoffs for the first time in the history of the school. Then I moved to another job in our district, Casa Roble High School. And I was there for five years and had an opportunity to go to Sacramento State University and coach at Sac State with the likes of Bob Matos and Mike Clemens and Rick Plumtree and Greg Knapp. Greg's now the quarterback coach for the Atlanta Falcons. Again, being around a lot of great coaches every day at Sac State for two years. I knew I was going to go back to high school because I loved college football. I just hated recruiting. I was not interested in placating 18-year-olds for my career. But every day at Sac State, I just learned so much football. I said, 
when I get back to high school, this is going to be incredible when I do X or Y or Z. I was recruiting a player at Del Campo High School and Jim Waldman, who was the coach at the time, was stepping down and he nudged me and said, hey, Steve, I'm retiring. So why don't you apply for the job? I applied. I got the job. And guess what? At that time, Del Campo High School was the worst football team in the Sac Joaquin section. So again, I have this propensity to take outhouses and turn them into penthouses. Our first year at Del Campo, we were two and eight. The second year, we were seven and three, won the CAL, which at that time, not a lot of schools were being built in the Sacramento area. That's when Oakmont and Roseville were the only schools in Roseville. Del Oro, these are teams that we had on our schedule. Jesuit, Elk Grove, Grant, Nevada Union. A friend of mine told me, said, Steve, you are committing professional suicide going to Del Campo. He said, you will never win at Del Campo. They don't win in football. We won the, the league in my second year there. And then my third year, we were nine and one. My fourth year, we were nine and one. My fifth year, we were eight and two. And we basically changed the culture of failure into a culture of success. Quite honestly, Justin, I wasn't really a football coach. I was a teacher and a strength and conditioning guy that happened to coach football. My career at Del Campo ended as a coach in 2002 when I decided to go into business mm -hmm. with Dan Buns, ex-San Francisco 49er, and mm -hmm. open up sports performance training facility that was one of the first of its kind anywhere in the United States. Because from 1985 until 2002, I basically spent my career trying to learn as much about strength and conditioning the high school athlete. I was a member of UNSCA. I was a member of USA Weightlifting. And for a while, I was a column editor in the NSCA Journal. I was the National High School Strength and Conditioning Coach of the Year in 1995. In 1997, I was nominated again. And people would come and say, how can you turn Encina into a winner? How can you develop a program at CASA? How can you change Del Campo into what they are? It was all predicated upon a year-round strength and conditioning program, which it to me is absolutely number one. X's and O's, notwithstanding, doesn't matter what you do, offense, defense, and special teams. If you can incorporate a year-round strength and conditioning program with high school boys in an Olympic model, yep. a four-year model, by the time that they are seniors, you will have them optimized for performance. We never beat Nevada Union as freshmen. They would destroy us as sophomores, Gary Sharp was a great JV coach up at Nevada Union. But in 95, 96, 97, 98, and 99, we beat Nevada Union at Del Campo, which at that time, they were the perennial section finalists in football mm -hmm. and one of the best programs in America, for that matter. We had a system that was based in strength and conditioning in combination with collegiate sophistication mm. where everybody was running the wing tee and playing the four, four, three deep freeze. We were playing college football in high school mm -hmm. in 1995 and everybody's doing it now, but very few people were running single back 
four and five receiver offensive packages. 94, 95, that's all we did. From 2-2 until 2-16, I worked with and developed the business Speed Strength Training, which incorporates a system of strength and conditioning that follows a year-round training program that I've basically created in 40 years. By being around some of the best football minds and strength and conditioning minds, guys like Mike Bergner, a USA weightlifting level five international coach. I wrote an article for the journal back in 1988 when I was at Castle Robley High School. And I get this phone call one morning from my office because he was reading the article as the editor. I didn't know him from anybody. And he called me up and he said, who in the heck are you? Because he and I basically had the same philosophy. It's incorporating dynamic warm-up, speed, agility, plyometric training, weightlifting, not bodybuilding, not powerlifting, but Olympic weightlifting to develop all athletes at the high school level. Most of this stuff was not my invention. Most of it was created by people that were much more intelligent than I. If I had a gift, it was taking what they know, packaging it into a system and creating it on a daily basis. Let me jump in on this if I can. I remember when I was in Sacramento, saw what you were doing through probably Baxter or somebody and reached out, called you or emailed you, asked if we could get together and you could teach me some things. And we met at the Togos down the street from El Camino and you spent an hour with me going through it all, talking to me about it, volunteering to come and work with my guys. And you will laugh at this, but to this day, our summer workout programs that I run here at the school with my daughters and my son and their friends and our athletes that are actually here in the summer is still based off of your model. I still have the binder. I break it out. I've digitized it at this point, but it's so transferable to what you're talking about in not just for football, for developing athletes versus what you said, bodybuilders. So for anybody that hasn't checked into what you do, you definitely need to because it is uh, a core foundational principle that was ahead of its time then and still resonates today. I'm curious and where I need to follow up on this now is you had all that success as a football coach and described yourself as a teacher who happened to coach football and a strength guy and an exercise physiologist, but you had all this success. What prompted you to walk away and focus on the, I'm not even gonna say the business aspect because I'm, I'm sure that's not what motivated you, but to, to really dig in for 16 years on physiology and trying to educate the masses into a better way to do things. Well, that's again, my fortunate, it's all timing. Mm-hmm. As a 21, 22 year old leaving University of Nevada, going into an exercise physiology master's program as a young man, being around some extremely brilliant scientists. Mm-hmm. And at Long Beach State at that time, I uh, remember after finishing the lab in the morning, I would walk out to the practice field because at that time, the USFL had just started. <laughs> and the LA USFL team had just signed a quarterback from BYU. His name was Steve Young. So I was able to walk out to the practice field and Sid Gilman 
was the offensive coordinator for the LA team. And I would stand right next to him. This is a great story. Literally, I could reach out and touch Sid Gilman as they were running just a fade route against a cover two for an hour straight. They're just working on literally the perfect pass mm -hmm. to beat cover two and, and throw that flat fade into the hole. I reached into a trash can and pulled out a practice plan for the USFL team that day, the LA team. And to this day, I still use exactly the same practice plan that I pulled out of the trash can in 1980. As a 22-year-old starting so young, once I got into this master's program and paralleled with football coaching, my entire mission was, how can I do a research-based process to find out how you can optimize athletic performance for high school athletes. And again, the NSCA was in its fledgling time. Boyd Epley had just started the NSCA for college coaches in 1978. Came an, an institution in 81 or 82. Guess what? That's when I was starting. Yeah. I kept doing research when the old days where you had to go to a library and get the microfiche and the computer IBM cards and hand it to the librarian to get these articles on sports performance for athletes. Mm -hmm. Everything was coming out of the NSCAJ. These guys have got the corner mm -hmm. on performance. I became a member of the NSCA and it was all based upon Eastern European training techniques and track and field. Because guess what? Every other sport in America is in America. The sports that go outside of America are the Olympic sports. And for me, weightlifting and track and field had the connection to the Eastern Bloc, mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So all of these training techniques were based upon what Matviev and Viroshansky were doing in the 60s with the athletes with one focus, <laughs> and that's to beat the Americans. But if you think about it, Justin, we are in an Olympic model in high school. It's a four-year model. So mm -hmm. if your athletes come in as freshmen and they train and you teach them how to train and then you refine their training as sophomores and then you begin to add load as juniors and then refine that load as seniors, what you've done is you've created a product from a process. And in America, we do not do that with anything. This is a credit card mentality. Do it now, pay for it later with interest. Okay, we don't take the time to develop athletes. In a perfect world, we would start our athletes as kindergartners with dynamic warm-up, technical lifting, and athletic performance. And then as third graders and fifth graders and seventh graders, they would learn how to move. Once they get to us as high school ninth graders, now they have been taught and it is what the Eastern model was doing 40 years ago. Right. And quite honestly, it's what the Chinese are doing now because most of those communist trainers, if they didn't defect to the West, they went to China or they went to Australia and continued in the same model. So the timing was so perfect for me because that's when the stuff was coming to light. 
1980, 1981, and 1982. And I was just fortunate enough to be humble enough to say, I'm not going to have my guys lift like power lifters. I'm not going to have my guys lift like bodybuilders. Have you ever seen a bodybuilder play basketball? Yeah, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. But their specificity of sport is to isolate and separate. Our specificity of sport is to coordinate. So we have to think in a different way. And it is not what is done in the gym with back shoulder bicep, legs, chest, tricep, like the old Mike Mincer pole programs from yep. the 70s. And it definitely isn't the strongman power lifter types that are lifting maximum loads mm -hmm. and only maximum loads. You take from weightlifting, you take from yoga, mm -hmm. you take from track and field, mm -hmm. and you, you combine it into a package, but it's got to be done five days a week, 50 minutes a day for 50 weeks for four years. If you do that, I don't care what you do. If you did push-ups and air squats and burpees and sit-ups mm -hmm. and you did them three times a week, 50 weeks a year for four years, you would have some very good athletes. Right. It's not so much what you do, it's that you do it over time. But there are better ways to do it than sets of three on Monday, bench clean squats, sets of five on Wednesday, bench clean squats, sets of one on Friday, bench clean squat. That is the analog of what the system is. In the, the 2020 version of the system, the 240 lesson turnkey conditioning model for high school physical education and athletics, if you can find the same workout in the fall semester, I'll buy you a case of beer. <laughs> okay. Once I get a hold of that, I'll look through that. So you go out in 2002 and you have come to this realization, there's a better way. And I'm uniquely positioned given my role, both in the Sacramento football world and the connection to the Bay Area where you can get this thing going. From that time, how has your approach to this shifted over the last 20 years because you came out with the one that I still have and what's changed in your approach how would you say your mind has shifted in how you do things quite honestly the foundation of it is five days a week 50 minutes a day for 50 weeks what you pour into it is basically what you have at your disposal what is your facility size how many athletes are you working with? What kind of budget do you have? There is a model within the model. The changes that have occurred in the last 20 years, quite honestly, is the CrossFit influence has been substantial. There is what I refer to in our latest model is energy system training. E1 training, E2 training, and E3 training, meaning the three energy systems of the body takes me right back to physiology 101 in 1980. E1 training is the old fashioned classic strength and conditioning that you would do with bench press or back squat or deadlift, mm -hmm. those types of fundamental movement patterns where you're doing five to 10 reps that take about 10 seconds in time, mm -hmm. followed by rest relief. 
So it's classic weightlifting that right. we've been doing. And you might do it one day a week. You might do it two days a week. It all depends on how it cycles through the system. The E2 training is the metabolic diabolicals, like the CrossFit type protocols. 100 push-ups, right. 100 sit-ups, 100 air squats, and 100 burpees for time, where you're basically exhausting the body, creating lactic acid tolerance. That's the E2 model. The E3 system is more like f interval training, fartlek training, doing some kind of weight training exercise, followed by a cardiovascular event that uses the Cori cycle to eliminate the lactic acid between sets. Hmm. Go back again, E1, E2, E3. E1's classic strength and conditioning, classic speed development, the old 40-yard dashes. Yep. Those would be what I'd call E1's. You might do those on Monday. Wednesday could be the metabolic diabolicals, mm -hmm. the CrossFit-type protocols, where you're exhausting your athlete, and they are literally laid out on the weight room floor gasping for breath. And then on Friday, you might do the E3s. So each week, it cycles. It just changes. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing that's been really different. I know that you would know the word periodization was huge 20, 30 years ago because it was the Eastern model. You periodize over a four-year period to get ready for one event. So what we did is we tried to jam a square peg into a round hole. How do you maintain that over a football season? How do you maintain that over a basketball season? How do you maintain that over a baseball season? And even more importantly, how do you keep the football coach from beating up the basketball coach or the basketball coach from fighting with the baseball coach because of these periodized phases that in your season, it's my strength phase. In yeah. their season, it's my power phase. My season, it's the recovery phase. So I threw that baby out with the bathwater. Our program, the system, is focused on a school year, not a seasonal year. Huh. We strength train through the year. One of the things that I did my research on in the early 80s was on power overload training. Do you know, Justin, that maximum power output occurs at 35% of maximum load? 35%. So let's say you're a girl volleyball player. She can bench press 100 pounds for a one rep max. The maximum power output she could achieve is at 35 pounds because P is equal to F times D over T. Time is the denominator in the equation. Speed of movement is much more important than the amount of weight that you lift. However, the caveat is you have to use heavy loads to fire every motoneuron. You have to lift heavy. You just don't lift heavy all the time. You have to lift fast. You just don't lift fast all the time. And most of us being human beings, we're such creatures of habit. We get into a pattern of training to where when we look back over the three-month period, we go, geez, we did the same thing over and over again. My system plans for the future. 
a year in advance so that I know what you're going to do on July the 1st, 2021, because I've already planned for it. And I build in the undulations from E1 to E2 to E3. Because if we're left to our own devices, we wouldn't do that. Because number one, we're not going to do E2 workouts because they're too hard. Nobody wants to do those. 50 air squats, a progression where you go one rep in minute one, two reps in minute two, three and three, four and four, five and five, six and six. The first five minutes of that workout is pretty easy. But when you get to 17 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 reps in minute 20, try it with a kettlebell, okay? You may not even make it to minute 15. Yeah, for sure. So that is the challenge. And that's what I've done for the the coach is he literally can turn the page and implement. Absolutely. And I can tell people that are listening that I've done that for years and that's your old model and it's still hyper effective. So I can only imagine how much more effective your enhanced system is. And I'm looking forward to getting my hands on it. I am wondering because you built this for a school year and under the model of a traditional public school where everybody's taking a PE class and if you can get them into a weight class, then they can do that on top of their sport practice after school. So you're not just stacking in addition to all of the homework that they might have. How do you modify that program and how do you make recommendations for schools that may not have PE. They may not have that built into the curriculum and their kids might be carrying a pretty hefty homework load in addition to that as a college prep school. What would your recommendations be for navigating that? My recommendations would be one of two things. I don't like the idea of the Dawn Patrol program. I don't necessarily embrace getting up at five in the morning and getting in the weight room at six Mm -hmm. and training until seven, showering and getting ready for school at eight Mm o'clock. So the the students get there at zero dark 30 Mm -hmm. and they're doing homework until nine o'clock at night. If you don't have the program embedded within the physical education day, then what I would recommend the coach do is you need to block in a 20 minute period of time within the practice itself, either beginning of at the practice or the end of their practice Mm -hmm. so that they incorporate the system within their practice. And again, I have some very different philosophies about practice. When I was a head football coach, we practiced a hundred minutes a day, a hundred minutes. That is 20 minutes less than two hours. When Matt Barnes was on our team in 97 and we averaged 49.7 points a game, We annihilated eight of the 10 opponents. Jesuit, Grant, or Nevada Union would be the only really challenging games that we would face in the season. We started practice at 3.15 and we were off the field at five o'clock because we were very efficient. We maximized our time as opposed to extending practice to two, two and a half, three hours. So with that as a backdrop, because you don't need to practice, more than 100 minutes per day. If you have your athletes for two hours a day, 20 minutes of that day should be either an E1, an E2, or an E3 component. Just build it into your practice so that you can guarantee training year-round. And let me add to that. This was in 1994 and 1995 and 1996. When I was at Del Campo High School, 
I had an XLPE class the last period of the day. We were on a four by four block and I had the football players in the fall. And then the seniors matriculated out in January, the sophomores came in and I had the sophomores and the juniors in the spring. We lifted from 1.30 to three o'clock, five days a week. During the season, we lifted three days a week. Tuesdays and Thursdays was more like football practice and film preparation. But on Fridays, we would have a game at 7.30 at El Camino High School. We would lift from 1.30 to three on Friday. Why do you have to pick on the Eagles, coach? Why couldn't you use a different example? But that's all right. Go ahead and back. I'm just saying. We, we played in Cena at El Camino. We played Mira Loma at El Camino. We yep. played Rio Americano at El Camino. So yep. you know, That was everybody's home stadium back then. Exactly. But the, the point is, it was part of the regular school day for my guys. It was like lunch. It was like breakfast. Because we didn't not train for months only to start training again. We didn't have the latent soreness and lag time because we trained 50 weeks a year for four years. So we would train on Monday of practice week. We would train on Wednesday. We used to do this thing, Justin, called the super squat. Mm -hmm. Dr. Randall J. Strassen, he wrote a book. It's called Super Squats. It was one of the coolest workouts ever and way before CrossFit protocol. 20 years before Greg Glassman we would start at the beginning of the year in August. I would tell the boys to select a very light load. And the super squat was one set of 20 squats, heavy breathing. So you go big breath, deep squat, rock bottom, butt to the heels, rock bottom, come out of the hole, breathe, rep two. It took about two and a half minutes to go through the super squat. This is August 15th. Every week, we would add 10 pounds to everybody's load. Guess what these guys were lifting by Thanksgiving? I can't even imagine. I had one guy, and God bless his soul, Casey Dickerson. He just passed away about a month ago. It's crazy. But he was one of our inside linebackers on those great teams. He did a set of super squats at 335 pounds, rock bottom, 20 rep squats, right on the Wednesday before a playoff game. Now, he was a little ineffective at practice that day. He recovered, he was fine by Thursday, and on Friday night, he was optimized for performance. So the point is, if you train and you commit to it longitudinally, it is amazing the human body can do. And I learned that when I was at the Olympic Training Center, level one and level two certification back in 88 and 89, watching these guys lift, they would lift three times a day, six days a week. And I was just amazed. I was going, how do you get these guys to do it? I said, we prepare them to do that. Yeah. Think about some guy that's a heavy construction worker that's lifting enormous amounts of concrete on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. It takes years for you to get to that level. This is the philosophy that we're talking about. Absolutely. And I think it speaks to the years long, generationally long, hey, we don't need to lift on game days. I don't want you to be tired. And then you go to the Kobe Bryant's of the world and it's like, no, this is just what we do. It's normalized. They've built this into their program and they're not worrying about not having anything in the tank because this is part of their regular schedule and the longitudinal approach that you have implemented and put into a program, which you called it turnkey earlier, I think, is really where this thing serves.
So I want a quick follow up on that. And then I want to ask another question. If you are going to implement the 20 minute a day aspect into your practice and you have a practice that let's say is only going to be 90 minutes, maybe a hundred on the long end due to a lot of reasons, where do you squeeze this in from a safety standpoint, right? Because do you do it at the beginning and then, uh oh, maybe you're not ready and something happens in practice or you do it at the end on your way out. What are your thoughts on that? Again, variation is the key. Mm -hmm. Some days you could do it to start to practice, depending on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. If it's an E1 to where it's some kind of a lift with full recovery, you could do three sets of five bench press and three sets of five back squats and three sets of five deadlifts. I'm just being as basic as I can. That could be done after a warm up to start the practice because you're getting full recovery, very little lactic acid buildup, and go right into practice. I did that all the time. That was my model before practice. You could do it in the middle of practice as a way to break up the fundamental component of your mm -hmm. practice from the team component of your practice. And mm -hmm. again, it's a good variation. Mm -hmm. And then if it's an E2 to where you really gas them, do it at the end. Yeah. Just build it in. Another anecdote to that coach, I'll tell you, Steve Kenyon never conditioned at practice. We didn't finish football practice with 40 wind sprints. We moved with a lot of tempo in practice to where we were creating a fitness component while we were doing specific movement patterns indigenous to football. Yeah, I think that's another one of the biggest misnomers in athletics is the idea of the traditional static warm-up or some sort of conditioning block where as a basketball coach, I don't know that I've ever done that. We just play up and down as much as we can to replicate game type situations. And to your point, no, we never condition. If we do, it's usually some sort of consequence. And I don't even like doing that because why are you going to use running as a punitive measure when you want them to run in the game? So I think thinking through those things differently is a great option you just gave people. The other thing I want to follow up on is you grabbed that practice plan out of the garbage in 19, what'd you say, 83? It was August of 80. August of 80. And you use that practice plan every season since. So my follow-up is with all of those years of experience and everything that you know and everything that you've learned, what does that practice plan look like today? And can you offer up in the best digestible format that could potentially cross any sport? This is what you need to do in this order. And here's why. I would love to hear a description for those people that are like me and maybe you're on long bike rides when they listen to these episodes. I'll tell you what it is. The practice plan is broken up into five minute blocks and there's 20 five minute blocks. So there's period one to period 20. So that's your 100 minutes. And then depending on the number of blocks that you want to use, like blocks one and two would be dynamic warm-up. For football, we typically would go dynamic warm-up. Then we would go to special teams. That would be about three five-minute blocks, 15 minutes of special teams. And the linemen would always go over and hit the sled. So after the 15 minute special teams block, then there would be two more blocks of time where we probably do some kind of either position specific tackling mm -hmm. or position specific blocking. So that's another two five minute blocks. Mm -hmm. 
then again, it's part to whole. Mm -hmm. It's old fashioned instruction, mm -hmm. uh, individual fundamentals to group fundamentals to inside run and seven on seven to team. Mm -hmm. And between the seven on seven pass protection component, we would do a five minute, what we call must period. We must kick PATs and field goals mm -hmm. every day of practice. And then we finish with a 20 minute team period. Mm -hmm. And you said something about using running as punishment. 1988 was an epiphanistic year for me. Um, I became a USA weightlifting level one guy. It was a Tuesday. I was at, I was at Castle Robley High School. My principal sent me to this seminar that I did not want to go to because I'm a head football coach and I get a game this week. It was the day of the Loma Prieta earthquake. It was a Tuesday. It's when the A's and the Giants were playing in the World Series and the earthquake hit. Absolutely. I remember that because I could feel it on the practice field at five o'clock. Yep. I was down the street at a stop sign parked. I went to this presentation and I didn't want to be there. By the end of the day, I was so glad I did. The gentleman was Dr. Fred Jones. He lives in Santa Cruz. I believe he's still alive. He's written two books. One of them is called Positive Classroom Instruction. The other one is called Positive Classroom Discipline. Probably going to require a different podcast, but one of the components was how to teach an exercise using a performance model, mm -hmm. a progressive part performance model, which is the basis for how Coach Kenyon teaches his Olympic movements. But that's a different podcast. The other one was a, a behavior modification that was the opposite of punishment. As I was driving back up Madison Avenue, going back to Castro Robley High School in Orangeville, is I'm going to use what I learned today, and I'm going to get my two starting captains, my uh, Fisher and Davidson. I'm going to pull them aside. I'm going to say, we're going to do six 200-meter repeats today at practice. We're going to do conditioning after we're done today. We're going to do our 20-minute offensive period with a 30-play script. I said, every minute that you come in under 20 minutes on this 30-play script, I'm going to deduct one of those 200 meter sprints. Mm -hmm. And these are two linemen. They didn't want to run. They said, oh, I'm, we're going to tell every player on the team. And if somebody screws it up, we're going to headbutt them a deal. This philosophy spread like wildfire across the practice field to where the team drill was the culminating thing of the day. We are right. not going to run any of these 200. We ran a 30 play script in about 15 minutes that day. So we were running a play about every 30 seconds. And this is the old days when we used to run players onto the field with the play. So my two running backs are running on and off the field with the play. I'm on the sideline. They're on the field. The scout team's on the field. The assistant coaches are on the field. I'm on the sideline. I'm no longer cracking the whip, telling everybody to hurry up. The players are cracking their own. We finished that 30-play script in 15 minutes. And we went from six 200s to only one. It made such an impression on the players that the next Tuesday, when I set up the same format, they did the 30 plays in under 13 minutes. And we had no 200s to run. What do you think the physiology was of every one of those players during that 13-minute team period where we ran 30 plays? 
their heart rates were going through the roof. We were conditioning while we were practicing. For the rest of the year, I think the slowest they ever did those 30 plays was 12 minutes and 30 seconds, which this is in 1988, coach. This is way before hurry up offense. This is way before the University of Oregon doing that Chip Kelly stuff to where you exhaust your opponent. Right. That team went nine and one that year and we lost a playoff game against Elk Grove when they were number one and we were a number two seed. But that is an example of how you don't use punishment, but reward. If you accomplish the task, you eliminate the undesirable behavior. Instead of, if you don't do it, we're going to run. This is part of practice. Here's another one. Every practice at Del Campo High School started with 50 down-ups. And you know what a down-up is. Oh, yeah. All players hate them. If you were on time at practice, I waved your down-ups. We went a whole season without one player ever being late to practice. (laughs) They would be sprinting out of the locker room, out onto the practice field to get to practice because they didn't want to start. It wasn't a punishment. It was a part of the practice. It was that very first block. I would put in every day, it would say 50 down. And I say, we're waving period one. Everybody's here. We're moving on to period two. Dynamic warm up, ready to go. That's awesome. It it wasn't mine. That wasn't my invention. That was Fred Jones stuff that I was smart enough to go, you know what? That is better than what I'm doing. I'm going to implement it this afternoon. Absolutely. And you were also lucky enough that your principal made you go to the workshop that you didn't want to go to. So I always joke in my life that sometimes our best decisions are made by other people. And so you got an opportunity to do that. And two great anecdotes that are instantly installable by anybody that's paying attention. So thank you for sharing those. Absolutely. What I want to know next is... You took a 16-year hiatus from coaching, and then you came back to help your son out at another San Juan school, coaching freshmen and sophomores and more entry-level athletes than what you were used to throughout your career. What I'm curious about most is two things. What did you notice upon returning after such a long gap in your coaching that you adjusted to based on how things had changed during that time? How did you adjust your coaching to fit that need at the time? And then two, and this one's more of an outlier question, but you're so well-read, you're so well-studied, you're always asking questions about, is this the best way? I want to know, what is something or what is the thing that you've most recently changed your mind on? To answer the first part of your question, quite honestly, the biggest fundamental change has been for me is some of my colloquialisms that I was using in the 80s and the 90s are frowned upon in the 2020s. Let's just say that. Yep, understood. Uh, I had to be very careful with a lot of the phraseology that I used to use on a daily basis that probably would in 2020 get me on the front page of the metro section of the B. Correct. So that was the number one thing. But I'll tell you what, it was a really good question that you asked. And I'm trying to think of when I was coaching in the 
eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands. Then I came back. I was an assistant at Del Campo in two sixteen and two seventeen, mm-hmm. and then going to Rio Americano where my son is teaching. I think fundamentally, we have taught the same concepts. The difference is that now it's so ingrained in me that there was not the need to get clinicked up on anything that is new. It was just refined to a point to where the fundamentals are still the same. The teaching sequences are still the same. And more than likely, I would have to say with the freshmen and the sophomores, It's just the thickness of your offensive, defensive, and special team manuals, much thinner. Yeah. And our focus was not so much on quantity, but quality. And I've been moved up now. I was the freshman D coordinator, then the JV D coordinator. And I haven't coached defense coach since 1984. I was an offensive coach the whole time I was a head coach. But what we're going to use on defense next year will be the same that we use this year. And it's the same defense I used at Del Campo High School in 1994. A forefront with gap control, one inside linebacker, two four-box defenders, and mm-hmm. a four-deep concept. Mm-hmm. Because everybody's running spread offense. I am not going to put two inside linebackers in the tackle box until you compress your offense. You compress, I compress. But everybody's now spread out. I'm going to spread out. We're defending hash mark to boundary. We're inviting them into the guard box because offensive coordinators don't want to beat you by running inside zone 40 times a game. They want to get to their stuff that they learned at the conference or they're visiting some passing guru. So that's what I'm taking away. I'm triangulating the boundary on each side. I'm going to invite them into the guard box. And it's a really simple approach to football. As Brandon Laird said earlier this year on one of these episodes, there's great beauty in simplicity. Yeah. Football to me is, it's a chess game executed physically. It's a math equation. You have three backs in the backfield. I need to have three linebackers. You have two. I need two. You have one. I need one. It frustrates me to watch these games, these NFL playoff games where there's two inside linebackers. They're running a four, three with a cover two and People are running double sets and trip sets, tray sets, and empty sets. And it just boggles my mind. Beat me running inside zone four yards a carry. And if you do that, I'm going to walk across the field, shake your hand. And that's the philosophy that I've gotten is if you think that you can run 27 defensive looks against these spread offenses, man, you got another thing coming. It's got to be. Keep it simple, stupid, so that your people are in the right position. And then you teach fundamental tackling Mm -hmm. and pursuit. That, to me, is the most important thing at the high school level, is fundamental football, alignment, assignment, responsibility, tackling, and teach pursuit. Mm -hmm. And that positive instructional model that we talked about earlier, that's how you do it on defense, is it's a 50-down-up challenge at the end of defensive practice. If you start the play in the huddle and you end the play in a huddle, I'm gonna deduct downouts to where we'll get down to zero. If you wanna to fly to the ball and finish on the ball, we'll deduct. It's not a punishment, it's part of the practice. Let's leave that part of the practice.
I love that approach. And just hearing the way you describe it, I'm wearing a football beanie right now, but take football out of it. The same idea is applicable across sport discipline. You take yes. it in volleyball, you take it in water polo, but the idea of what are the basic fundamentals? I love your analogy. It's a chess game executed physically. And the majority of sports are the same way. I couldn't think of a better way to put that. And thank you for sharing that. On the second question, and I know this goes because I've known you for years to your constant study and your constant evolution as a thinker and your background in your master's program. And people don't know this, but you mentioned it earlier. You've been published in some of these studies as an author of, hey, here's how you do things. So what have you changed your mind on recently where it's like, hey, this is where I was. And after X number of years or after this conference that I didn't want to go to, I'm over here now and here's why. I think... The, the things that I have changed over time have been that I am very comfortable with the next mousetrap. I never have been stuck in the model of this is how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. you know, this is how we're going to do it. I feel that I have an open mind to seeing what's out there. And if what's out there is better than what I'm doing, I'm going to start implementing that starting tomorrow. I, I go back to the Del Campo days of the early 90s. Everybody was running wing tee football. Mm -hmm. And everybody was running a, a three-deep, eight-man front concept on defense. The, the exposure to the collegiate game at Sac State allowed me to say, wow, this spread offense is going to be so different because all of our opponents are running wing T. When they go against us, number one, they're not going to be able to simulate what we do. And number two, they're going to be unfamiliar with it because everybody else is running wing T football. Same thing with our defensive concept. It was not a three deep concept. It was a four deep concept. It, it isn't that I've changed a lot of stuff. There's never been any throw the baby out with the bathwater mm -hmm. type of a concept, but it's been that as we continue to evolve and as we get exposed to new drills, new fundamentals and new techniques, if what's going on now is better than what was happening 10 years ago, then you need to be humble enough to make the change. Absolutely. And, and that's what's really critical is that people are resistant to change because they think the change means that what they're doing is wrong. Mm -hmm. It isn't that it's wrong. Is this what's going on now is better? But we've been doing dynamic warm-up, Justin, since the 80s. I've never done static stretching, but we do static stretching at the end of practice or yoga-type movements at the end of practice, which I think is good. That's probably one of the biggest changes I see from coaches is how you warm up to prepare for practice. And that's what's really changed probably over the last 20 years more than anything else. That and the incorporation of the diabolical metabolic stuff, the CrossFit type protocols. Yeah, a wealth of knowledge just in that answer and the takeaways being humble enough to receive new information and not judge that you're wrong, but that there might be a way that's different that you could benefit from is a great way to frame that for people because it's possible that two things that seem to be in opposition can both be true. And can you get your head wrapped around the idea of 
it depends is always an answer versus what you said. No, this is the way we do it. This is always the way we do it. No, things are going to shift and you got to be willing to be flexible. And it seems like you've embodied that for the duration of your career. So this has been absolutely captivating. And I definitely want to do at least a round two, if not a round three. But this is a great way to start, Coach. And I appreciate you reaching out and taking the time to make this happen. Coach, this is going to be my present to you. Yes. This, so excited. Yeah, this is the new and improved version of what you've been using for the last 20 years. I'm so excited. And, uh, if you go to my website, if anybody is interested, again, this is an introduction, uh, our testing protocol, the fall training cycle, the spring training cycle, the summer training cycle, and then 100 rubrics on all 100 exercises that now I refer to as the ST Big 100. And every exercise not only has a rubric, every exercise is on DVD. That's great. This is going to come to you by mail. And if anybody that's watching is interested, mm -hmm. uh, they can go to my website at stweightrooms.com. And uh, they could also email me if they want at sstweightrooms at gmail.com. And uh, if somebody reaches out to you and through you, coach, I would be more than happy to give somebody my cell phone number if they want to give me a cell phone call or a text. Yep. And I appreciate that. And we'll put all of that in the show notes. And to those that are listening, just know he's very sincere in that. And as I described earlier on the episode, took time out of his life when he barely knew me to sit with me and coach me through all of this and have never forgotten that coach. And I appreciate you even now uh, offering that up. Looking forward to uh, seeing you on the other side of COVID. You bet. It'd be great. And in the meantime, I'll send this, the system, to the U.S. mail. This podcast was also brought to you by teachhoops.com. As coaches, our inboxes will get flooded with noise on how to make your program better. Teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done. One thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience, you got to keep pushing yourself to be better. Coach Steve Collins will help you direct that noise. He is there to help you. He has the credentials as a coach, and he's never turned down an Teach Hoops member. Sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout. This site is here simply to help you be better. Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. Hi, this is Natasha McKeel, recreational tennis player at the club at Pasadena and labor and delivery nurse. Ever feeling tired after a long day at work or after tough practice? Try Element. That's L-M-N-T for the energy you're missing in your life. It's sugar-free and filled with electrolytes your body needs for energizing power. It's try it risk-free, money-back guarantee with our special offer at drinkelement, that's L-M-N-T dot com slash Justin Climo. You only pay the shipping. What's there to lose? Power up. Thanks for listening. If you found this valuable, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and give contacts and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support.